for me, what was very defining about the experience was doing the fundraising as a woman. Uh, I'm used to being the only woman in the room. I've had a long career of tech operator and startups, but uh, this was different. And it really caught me off guard, the challenges uh, and the bias that I faced in the process of fundraising for the company. So I spent a long time researching, you know, figuring out, was my experience typical? What does fundraising look like for women or people of color or anyone who identifies as underrepresented in the space? Zach here from Boston Speaks Up. That is the voice of Allison Byers. She is the founder and CEO of Scrubius, which is increasing diversity in the startup ecosystem by affordably helping founders create compelling pitch material and a platform to help investors easily find those founders. Uh, Allison has been a, a, a lovely entrepreneur in the in the Boston ecosystem for some years now, uh, but she's also seen sort of the the dark side of, of what it's like to be a female entrepreneur and sort of you know pushed out of an organization at one point and just having some challenges raising capital um, at different points in her career, um, which ultimately you know pushed her down this path of of creating Scrubius. So I'm really looking forward to folks um, hearing this conversation and sort of getting some line of sight into some of the great work that Allison's doing for the Boston community and beyond. So enjoy. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with Scrubius founder and CEO, Allison Byers. Allison, that was the second time I had to say your name. I'm tongue twisted this morning. How, how are you? I'm good. I, I didn't think I had a hard name. <laughs> Allison Byers. I mean, that's you know pretty standard name. Uh, we're going to talk about where that name comes from in a moment, uh, but for listeners, for folks that don't know the awesome work that you're up to right now, can you talk a bit about Scrubius, um, your role there, and, and sort of what the company is all about? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll, I'll give a high level, and I always like to start with my origin story. As with any good pitch, I think it really helps set the context for the, the mission of the company. Uh, so I did found Scrubius in January of 2020, just about two years ago now, and it was uh, one month before COVID showed up, which is a very interesting time to incorporate a company. Uh, but before that, uh, I had launched and co-run a startup medical device company spun out of MIT in the Leahy Hospital System here, uh, where I was the business person on the founding team responsible for fundraising. And we did raise about $10 million over the course of five years. We went from a friends and family through a Series A prime, uh, did an SBIR grant, got our FDA clearance, all that stuff in the middle there. Uh, and that company was ultimately acquired. But for me, what was very defining about the experience was doing the fundraising as a woman. Uh, I'm used to being the only woman in the room. I've had a long career of tech operator and startups, but uh, this was different. And it really caught me off guard, the challenges uh, and the bias that I faced in the process of fundraising for the company. 
So I spent a long time researching, you know, figuring out, was my experience typical? What does fundraising look like for women or people of color or anyone who identifies as underrepresented in the space? And for anyone who's looked into this at all or has tried to do this from an underrepresented standpoint, uh, it is not surprising that we only get 2% or less of VC dollars. It's clear when you have that firsthand experience, all of the systemic barriers to accessing relationships and capital uh, when it comes to venture capital. So uh, what the mission of Scrubius is, uh, is to mobilize founders, particularly those who are overlooked or underestimated, to be more investable by educating them in how you create compelling material for investors specifically, because it is not intuitive how you pitch. It is unlike any other presentation you give. And if you don't have that background and you don't have that network, it's not easy to figure out. Uh, and a lot of people are blocked from even having an initial meeting with an investor because they go in with material that uh, isn't speaking to the investor's mindset. Uh, and then on the other side of that, we don't have this in the market yet, but we're building it. We're actually close to having it ready for a soft launch is an investor facing uh, platform to discover these founders where we have clarified the opportunity they present. Uh, and we're focused on angel investors, micro VCs, people who truly write first checks and have a very different investment thesis, at least when it comes to the angel investors, because they don't have LPs. They don't have fiduciary responsibility to anyone but themselves. And they also are looking uh, to provide more than just their financial capital, which is what these founders need. Uh, so we have some really cool uh a really cool approach to this that's centered on data science and a recommendation engine for hyper curation on that side. But I'm going to stop there because that, that was a lot. That's great. That's great. And I have like a few follow-up questions. I'm taking a few notes here. Um, one is who comes to mind and sort of going to draw on a bit of my sports interest here, but Brian Flores, former coach of the New England Patriots, went down to Miami um, was let go after some successful seasons. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this story in the last month or so, he was fired. <clears throat> He's come out against the NFL and said he was basically only interviewed by some NFL teams purely because he's black. And he actually, you know, Bill Belichick actually made the mistake of texting him the wrong Brian. Uh, Cause there's a white Brian that actually got the New York giants job. Yeah, and it yeah, kind of no, helped, <laughs> it helped, helped confirm the dot, you know, connect and confirm the dot connection that, you know, there's a problem in, in sport, uh, certainly NFL, but I think a problem that like is now at one of the biggest levels, the NFL, that's a similar problem that you see in venture land where I have talked to uh, founders who are from the underestimated pool, um, oftentimes black and brown, feeling like they've gotten meetings with VCs because the VCs are looking to essentially meet a quota for at least welcoming folks that aren't white. Um, in their doors. And I, I don't know how else to say it, but it's like, when you hear it, it's like, wow, that's egregious. Um, Want to speak to that at all? And, and is, it's probably difficult to quantify, but is, is that a problem that is quantified or anyway? And can you just, you know, can you just speak to that topic? Yeah, no, it is. It's a huge problem. I mean, there are many problems with the emphasis and weight placed on different signals of what, um, 
an investor would classify as a quality opportunity or a real opportunity. Many that don't have anything to do with the actual potential of the business or the founder, um, if they were measured in a real way. And there is a problem with a lot of talk about diversity and supporting diversity and wanting to diversify pipelines. But you're right, it ends at maybe that meeting or you go to events where you meet with a bunch of women and people of color and then you feel good about yourself and say you're doing that outreach to the community, but the dollars aren't flowing. So how much are you really doing? Uh, And then that measurement is also a problem. But I sometimes I get really worked up about this stuff and I just shoot off LinkedIn posts or Twitter posts when I when I'm feeling heated. Uh, and the measurement of it, I, I did a post where I said, you know, why don't why don't you track? I made a little spreadsheet even and shared it for tracking how many women founders have you taken a first meeting with? How many did you look at their pitch deck? How many black founders? The same thing. How many did you take a second meeting with? And if you because if you don't track your own behavior, you you aren't even aware. And you might think that you're giving fair representation, but without the quantified data behind it, you're biased in your own opinion of what you're doing. Uh, And it's actually one of the big aims of our investor-facing portal once we release that is some transparency reporting on your own behavior. So we're going to show back to an investor, how many pitches did you engage with from these different demographic segments and uh, how many of those types of founders did you reach out to? So you have some transparency into your own behavior. That's really that's really cool. Um, I have a couple, I have a few different directions. I feel like we can take this. One is that it's just it's great to see Scrubius come like come up in the in the Boston ecosystem at a, at a similar time as very complementary platforms like Black Tech Pipeline. It's like we've had Paris Chandler on the podcast. Like her profile continues to build. The work she's doing is great. Part of what I talked about with her on the podcast is it's not just her creating a a platform or a network of of talent. Uh, that companies that want to meet a quota for black or brown people can just come and plug into. And she implements really strict practices, essentially almost borderline audit, but she you have to create standards of excellence. And like there's quarterly check-ins to make sure that those, that black and brown talent, that black tech pipeline is bringing into a company. Um, they come with like a set of, there's a set of accountability and standards that need to be um, met or surpassed. And there's going to be check-ins over time, and I, I haven't checked in with Paris for a while, and it might be worth you know checking in. But I, but I really admire that, um, and I imagine like there's probably some common, uh, some commonality between the way she's approaching it and the way that maybe over time, like the platform you're building can help establish just like standards, um, and and then help folks you know ensure that they're sort of like you know meeting and and, and growing from the standards. But you bring a really good point. It's like if you're not even tracking this, like. How can you even know how you're doing? Um, and yeah. chances are you're probably not talking to enough people from enough background. So you're you're there's a lot of bias in how you're approaching your job. And as we discovered a little bit in the pre-podcast Q and A, like it's actually like a lot of great opportunity you're leaving on the table. Given underestimated founders uh, tend to over-index and outperform um, the overall general aggregate of founders um, in the venture economy, right? Oh, we do. It's been proven time and again that we deliver better investment returns. We are actually, you know, an undervalued asset class in that framing. Uh, It's true. And that's how you find alpha. If you're an investor is you find overlooked uh, opportunities and undervalued opportunities that are going to outperform and you take that bet on them early and you reap the rewards. 
Uh, and that's, you know, an, another issue that we run into a lot. I'm kind of switching topics a little bit, but I, I did have more yeah. to say on what you said because yeah. it, yeah. it's very interesting. My background uh, way back in the beginning is in clinical psychology. And I, I love using those principles of how our brains work to influence behavior change. So mm-hmm. showing data is actually very powerful because we trick ourselves into thinking, you know, justifying that we are doing what we want to do. Um, but when we're confronted with actual data about it, uh, it's different because we, you know, it really opens our eyes. And when we're compared to a mean or an average, uh, it is different. We, we frame it differently in our brains. Um, but, oh my gosh, I just lost my train of thought. I'm so passionate about everything that we're talking about already. Like off the bat that I'm losing my, my train of thought here. No, no uh, worries. That's what, that, that's what a good, uh, podcast editor is, <laughs> is for. Um, if, if you want, I can throw you another question and we can kind of just keep rolling. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. The, um, so the net, the net, the sort of adjacent to what we've been discussing here, you did tease out the investor facing platform. So I would just love if you could share a little bit more on sort of the, what's the deliberate way you're building the platform, especially with, through the lens of your, um, sort of like, you know, sort of like, you know, clinical, um, sort of psychologist background and, and sort of your, um, interest in sort of like data and, and, and sort of, you know, creating standards to, uh, lift up, um, you know, sort of lift up this market. I mean, what I imagine there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of nuance going into the platform. So sort of, can you speak a bit to like, for what the community can expect and, if you could go as far as to say when we might expect it, cool, but I'm most interested in sort of what it offers and what's going into the build. Yeah, for sure. And a, a lot of this is vision is forward looking. You know, we as a company are two years old, uh, but as I mentioned at the top, I incorporated right before COVID. Uh, I have two school age kids and it drastically changed my plans for how I was going to build this company uh, just to handle the realities of life. Uh, and like a lot of mothers, actually one in three mothers have been forced to reduce or leave their jobs who are in the workforce over the past two years. Uh, it really impacted our growth, but we're in a great place now. Uh, so on the investor uh, side of things, we are a few weeks away from having our custom platform. You know, we went to market with our MVP on a low-code platform so we could rapidly deploy on the founder side. Uh, and we have worked with over 230 founders all inbound. I've spent nothing on sales or marketing. So the need was validated before I started this company, but even more so after uh, with the need to go fully remote and the racial awakening that our country has been going through. Um, so uh, yes, on the investor side, I'm very interested in angel investors as their own uh, capital class. They cumulatively actually have more investing power than venture capital does. There are more than 4 million actively investing angel uh, accredited investors in the US alone. It's also very hard to measure. It's likely more than that. And there are emerging angels of which I'm one of them. I've started angel investing this year. uh, Who will 3000 of them will make their very first investment this year. They are much more likely to be women, people of color, those who identify with the founders that they're looking to support. Uh, But they're very fragmented, right? It's a fragmented market. It's individuals spread all over the place. Uh, And 
right now, the way that they are trying to group is through angel groups, which we've seen, you know, many of them start up, particularly in Boston, uh, or regional based contacts where they can pool their capital or pool their diligence together. Uh, all of those depend on you proactively defining what you're looking for and kind of manually matching yourself against traditional factors like the size of the raise, who is the leader, what is the industry, those kind of things. Uh, with my background in utilizing data to understand human behavior, I believe there is a much better way to curate what you are shown that does not need to rely on who you know in your network or what region you happen to live in or what group you happen to be part of. By incorporating those traditional factors of what you might be looking to invest in, along with your own behavior, your own engagement with things, you can build a model that pretty accurately predicts what you might really be interested in. Uh, and again, it's that concept of what we say we want does not usually equal what we actually do. And uh, it's just the way our brains work. So by utilizing engagement behavior, by taking in data that is non-traditional, like factors, you know, we can use natural language processing for parts of the pitch. We can use movement. We have our founders create video pitches. There's so much data that co goes with the evaluation of who you think is worth a first meeting that isn't being collected at all right now or used at all to try and hyper-curate the experience where we have seen it be incredibly successful in other industries. So that's, you know, kind of our, our big, big vision here. That's great. A few thoughts. Well, one is when you were describing the way the sort of the way that you would you're curating interests and taking a making it, you know, trying to take out so much of the, you know, intent and just existing bias that anyone might have that's plugging in any platform. I thought of social media analogies here where it's like, you're not taking the Facebook approach, you're taking the TikTok approach. Like, yeah, exactly. It's an right? interest-based network. A lot of my early research in formulating yeah. what I wanted to do in this space was looking into Netflix, looking into TikTok. Why did those take off? Exactly right. Yeah, no, and I could see it as that's it more is surfaced that you otherwise would never, you know, you've never expressed intent to, you know, laugh at a video that you're getting from some man or woman in Omaha, Nebraska, you know, do, doing, you know, dropping a, a ball of paint on their wife um, going down the stairs. But for some reason, it really resonates with you and the algorithm figured it out. Um, so yeah, the yeah. TikTok is TikTok has really sh um, reshaped my brain a bit on sort of like the development of, of, of platforms. The other, the other couple of things that come to mind, um, I'm just thinking about sort of, so, oh, great. So you, no code kind of platform, get the MVP out, pr prove the product market fit, 250, 230 plus founders have plugged in on, and, and you don't, and you don't yet have, and now you're kind of building the platform up for that investor side. And I'm just thinking like down the, down the road, would it, would it not make like would it not stand a reason that it'd be a benefit to um, investors that if you could create a, a standard, it'd almost be like a currency or or a or or a standard or or just a standards company to almost have a badge that those VCs have on their site where it's like the Scroobius badge, like oh that's a that's a VC with the Scroobius badge. So that's that's one thought, and then the other thought is too, like down the road, 
given your you're an angel and your angel network and given angels um, and micro sort of financing is is starting to have like a really interesting um, surge in the space. You look at groups like TBD Angels locally, the syndicate out in SF. Is there ever talks of a fund, um, a Scroobius fund? And would that would you ever capitalize founders um, yourself and, and develop that model? Um, so I know that that's just a couple ideas that sort of come to mind as we're talking here. Yeah, and people have brought up a fund to me before, and there are a lot of uh, emerging fund managers. So it's also a large growing segment. And maybe someday, it's not where my interest lies right now. And part of it is the dynamic that comes into play when you take other people's money and manage it for them. Uh, and it's a different... I think it's become very difficult for emerging fund managers who got into this for, um, you know, to make a change, to do things differently. And once you're actually in something that you haven't been in before, a lot comes to light about what you need to do, how the regulations play in your own, you know, the LP relationship is very different and you have fiduciary responsibility again. Uh, it's it's just so different from an angel investor making their own decision with their discretionary income. Um, you know, that being said, the product development path for Scroobius moves along the life cycle of a company. So we're focused on pre-seed and seed stage companies now, really, you know, the ones who need the smaller checks, the first checks and the human capital that goes along with it. Um, but as you move down, it, it, the pitch changes, the type of capital source needed changes. So perhaps one day. Cool. And you seem to perk up a little bit around the Scroobius badge, but do you, do you see that potentially coming to fruition down the road or is that already in the pipeline? Yeah, no, we've talked about that a lot. And an indicator marked that, you know, you are measuring your own diversity efforts, that you truly do support diverse entrepreneurs. You know, we're going to, Within the investor platform, there are two ways to communicate with founders. Uh, one is to leave feedback on a pitch. You can do it either anonymously or transparently. If you know revealing your name is a barrier to giving honest feedback, fine, don't reveal your name. The founders still need the feedback. And we can track if you're giving that feedback uh, as a way to be helpful to these founders. Uh, and um, then you know, messaging. The, the ultimate call to action is a connection, is, is directly messaging a founder. So how many of those are you doing? And you know, you'll be looking at your own statistics for your engagement with an overlooked audience uh, because our community is right now 68% women, I think it's 87 or 88% uh BIPOC or people of color with obviously some overlap in there. Uh, so it, yes, we, we've thought a lot about how do we work in those symbols of true action and support uh, that people can display. Great. So I, I clearly you have this sort of, um, you have a maternal instinct. Um, you have a maternal instinct that you have in your own home. You have, you have your, your, your mom, you have, you have two children. Um, you've also were the oldest of, of, of eight and we need to unpack like sort of the, <laughs> the, the group of eight that you grew up with, um, a bit. And, and so clearly it's, you know, it, it, it's a fitting role for you to, um, it's interesting what you kind of pursued academically and this role you find yourself in now where you're sort of, um, sort of a, a caretaker or a bit of a shepherd, um, for, for lots of different people from different backgrounds. Um, and I think it, 
it's clicking for me, um, having spent some time just in the pre-podcast Q&A with you, like sort of how you're in, you're working on a very uh, appropriate, purposeful pursuit for, uh, for Allison Byers. Um, but can you share like a bit about your, your upbringing and sort of where you grew up and in, in the, in the unique household you grew up in? Uh, because I think that really helps um, paint the picture of sort of who adult you know, Allison Byers, the 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 entrepreneur, uh, mom, parent, community badass is. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I, I had an interesting childhood. Uh, none of it, you know. I I did have a. I come from a privileged background. I fully, you know, appreciate that. I have advantages going into things, but none of it was easy. Uh, I don't know how many people would say their childhood was easy, but, um, but yeah, my, my parents divorced when I was 10, uh, and I was the oldest of two, you know, full-blooded siblings, uh, and, uh, both, you know, met other partners. Um, so the eight, uh, is a blend of step siblings, half siblings, there's an adopted sibling in there. Um, but I, I'm the oldest by far. So even of my full-blooded siblings, uh, my sister is 10 years younger than me. My half-brother is 17 years younger than me. Uh, so I've always been, you know, a blend of sibling slash parent uh, when when you're, you know, living in multiple households like that and, and by far the oldest of all the kids. Cool. And so where, where did you grow up exactly? Uh, so I lived in Weston until I was in the middle of my sophomore year of high school. And then we moved down to Sharon. Okay. Well, so I had about a year and a half in Sharon. How was um, that? Uh, were you enjoying high school going through your sophomore year when, when you shifted things up or was that a welcome shift? know that any shift at that stage is welcome. It's a very difficult time to transition to a new yeah. environment. Um, but no, I, for me, I, I really do love academics. I've always really enjoyed being in school. Um, I, you know, that, that's a great place of learning for me. Uh, but there were other elements that were difficult. Um, you know, it, I, I am Jewish and that's come up, you know, a lot as a theme in my life is feeling um, underrepresented in that way, particularly in Weston. I think there were three of us in my grade, maybe, uh, you know, there's no temple there or anything. So that was... Yeah. Um, you know, not not the best feeling. You'll kind of feel like an outsider. Uh, and people don't realize that we're only 2% of the population, 0.2% of the global population. So we, you know, we seem more prevalent than, yeah. than we are, maybe. Um, uh, and, you know, going through personal challenges, again, with, you know, in a complex family dynamics and uh, switching between households and serving that parent-type role, uh, it's difficult. It makes for you know a, a difficult time in a in a socially awkward school environment. Yeah, I having grown. I grew up in Methuen, and one of my two, one of my you know best friends, uh, someone I ended up going to college with, and uh, got married not too long ago. Really good friend. He was one of only like two Jewish families I knew in like all of Methuen. Um, uh, and so it, it is, yeah, it is. Actually, it wasn't until I got to college where I where met a lot more, um, like Jew, Jewish people, but it's, it's, it's interesting that, um, it's interesting. That's the case. Um, and so, uh, I'm curious sort of like when you were growing up with your family, were there different like religious backgrounds or were there any, were there any sort of like, you know, was there any sort of like 
conflict or conflict resolution. I'm kind of curious a little bit about if you as the oldest of sort of this, this group of eight, um, what kind of role did you find yourselves in, itself in that sort of led you down the path that you pursued uh, academically sort of post post high school? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how much of my family dynamics played into it, probably a lot. If I went back and self-analyzed, I'm sure uh, it would. But starting in really early high school, I became very, very interested in how the human brain works and in you know clinical psychology in particular. Uh, and I went pretty deep into those studies at a young age uh, and heading into college. That was I had my whole plan worked out. I was going to be a clinical psychologist. So, you know, get my doctorate. I, I did everything in undergrad that you would do for that. You know, tons of working in labs directly under professors, independent studies, you know, worked in the hospitals. Uh, I worked at the Medfield State Hospital for a little while before that closed down. Um, uh, and it really was this passion for understanding how our chemistry and how our biology impacts how we act in the world and how we can be so extremely different as, you know, uh, as human beings um, when we all start with that same basic biology. Uh, and so, you know, I'm sure a lot of the family dynamics played into that. I'm sure, you know, serving as a parent more than a sibling a lot of the time and in that role played into wanting to understand that type of thing. Um, and the religion too, you know, we're a very compassionate religion and a lot of the, you know, Hebrew teachings when you're younger are about having compassion for, you know, mm -hmm. fellow humans and how you can make sense of a world that can be very cruel uh, and not view humans as cruel. So, yeah, it's like, empathy like sort of the practice like practice of empathy which is a simple practice now when i think about it because i try to practice and think about it all the time but i think of all the things that are words that were never told like i don't think anyone said the word empathy to me in up through 20 years old like i don't i don't <laughs> honestly don't think like a school teacher or a parent or a mentor or a coach like even tried to explain to me to practice empathy. Um, which is so funny. I, which is crazy. I just had a whole conversation literally this past week with my daughter who is eight uh, in the car about the difference between empathy and sympathy. We, like, it was a whole conversation we had. Yeah. And I have those conversations in, in car with a lovely four and a half year old daughter that I have that asks like incredible questions um, on the way to preschool every day. And, and we similarly talk about, um, we talk about empathy and, and we talk about sort of uh, ways to um, appreciate others and, and like sort of the tactics to do that. And it's, it's good. It's, you know, I feel like we're, we're a woke sort of generation of parents and, and you know, I think the future is bright. I think we probably need to innovate in directions that help make the planet is healthy, make sure the planet is healthy. Like, like sort of, you know, why I have a natural inclination towards like climate tech and whatnot, but yeah, well, but, well, it, yeah. it really does impact a lot of careers and, you know, bringing it back to entrepreneurship for a minute, one of our big, uh, you know, I hate calling it an advantage, but I think the reason why so many people find us is because empathy is directly related to authenticity, right? And understanding from an authentic firsthand position to be able to say, I empathize with you, which I, I say frequently. I even I just tweeted about that the other day. Just tell people you empathize. If you do, say it out loud. Yeah. Uh, it's powerful. It's really powerful. And there is no way to fake yeah. that. 
Um, And so I I think it really directly relates to the business relationships you establish. Yeah, that's right. And so the words like emotional intelligence come to mind and sort of like just developing that at at a young age. I'm also thinking of Brene Brown. I I like to say, like, I I often channel my inner Brene Brown, which is to just embrace vulnerability. To your point, (laughs) you can't fake vulnerability. Like if you say out loud, like, hey, I'm I'm anxious about this or, you know, I'm I'm uncertain if I'm doing the right thing here. Like, you know, acknowledging like this is a point of vulnerability for me. And literally saying the words like I'm practicing empathy right now or I like I'm feeling vulnerable right now are valuable ways to communicate with people to disarm them and realize like, hey, we're both like we each or if there's more people in the room, like we all are imperfect beings trying our best to make the right decisions to live good lives. That's the romantic way I like to look at all people. And if we communicate more with that openness, I think people can feel much more comfortable with each other. And it's like, wow, there's not much to your point about the or, or you know, sort of origin story of all of our biology. Like, yeah, we're all pretty similar and we go on these like beautiful, unique paths in life. But if we can speak and interact in ways that make, you know, that help us feel more relatable like family, and we happen to be like minds in business, perhaps we can do more amazing things than those before us. And and that's what I'm particularly love about sort of the more and more, the bigger embrace of sort of empathy and vulnerability that that you're seeing just, I think in general, like in 2022, as it, it's sort of been now for several years now, but I feel like it's I feel like it's making its way in the innovation scene and the tech scene in a way that, quite frankly, I didn't see it like in the 2000s when I first started my career, but it just seems to be more prevalent now. Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely is more prevalent, but it also comes with the push for increasing diversity on both sides. I, I, I'm relating this back to entrepreneurship because that's the world I play in right now, but it, you know, it obviously has much further uh, reach than that. Um, but where it's particularly imbalanced. So not in entrepreneurship and funding, it's particularly imbalanced. Uh, The more balanced, the more you can have people who do have an authentic firsthand shared experience with each other so they can have empathy, not sympathy, uh, the more you're going to see those factors valued as you continue business. And you're going to see it enter the popular press more, which is what we're seeing with emerging fund managers. That's the other side, right? We're kind of at the very beginning stages of of working towards some balance. We are nowhere near that. You know, if you're in this world, you feel like it's everywhere. It's not. We still, our funding to women went down this past year. We got a Mm -hmm. smaller piece of a bigger pie of venture capital funding. So, you know, I don't want people to believe that we're making meaningful progress yet, but it it will take some generations to get there. But this is how you start, is by having people who have that shared firsthand experience on both sides of the negotiating table. Mm. This may be a flawed experiment, but part of me is like, if a ton of women and people of color right now were to just focus purely on Web3 pitches, I'm curious if they'll be capitalized as fluidly as, I'm, as it seems the, the Web3 blockchain crypto economy currently is. I don't know if you've seen the billions of dollars that have been poured in just in like the last quarter, but um, like I, I'm, it, it's going to be fun to see your platform grow and 
and you know imagine imagining like a lot of the founders are going to be working on like the obvious areas of like innovation like required in the world and if there starts to be friction and lack of sort of you know the the support um and investments aren't necessarily to the tilt that i think we'd like to see um consider me like a a cohort in in whatever sort of like future sort of like go to market activities may be required to like further uh stoke the fires of of those out there that are sort of like continuing to introduce bias into this world yeah. um well, you, yeah. you bring up an interesting point with the, you know, the web point, the web yeah. three and, you know, whatever, you know, whatever buzzwords you want to put in yeah. there. What's, what's interesting to me are with, with some of my founders, I'm already seeing it. So some of my uh, founders, particularly, I'm thinking of some, particularly some black founders, one uh, female black founder who their ideas aren't web three or crypto or blockchain. It's not core to their business. It predated this, but with the rise of these technologies and with them now being more publicly available and easier to implement, they're they're shifting their business models and it actually allows them to have a big, like to, it bolsters their business yeah. model, the ability to incorporate blockchain elements into yeah. what they're doing. So they're shifting, they're pivoting, they're redoing right. their pitches. It'll be interesting to see what, how that helps, you know, if, if that helps yeah. move further along. Yeah, I'll be really curious. I, I would, I mean, the um, the data and evidence from sort of PitchBook and like some of the folks that monitor like venture capital investments would suggest that it would increase the likelihood of investment. And then if if that isn't the case through this pool of 230 and growing from Scrubius, then I think then we'd probably then it, then it's an interesting. There's some interesting insights to take take away there, and, and obviously some continued work. Um, yeah, right. and for them, you know, we, we talk about VC, like even, you you know, just mentioned VC, but, you know, the hard part is for our founders and for, you know, for me too, I group, I'm right along with them. I'm fundraising. I'm a, you know, female founder too. Um, VC is just so unrealistic for us knowing, you know, having the experience of getting a hundred no's and knowing the statistics of the odds of you getting VC dollars. And that that's why I'm so passionate about angels and alternate capital sources that don't follow the structure of VC as allowing us to get the capital we need just to hit the milestones where we have higher expectations for traction than, than those who are getting the VC investment. Interesting. Have you chatted with Jason Burke and David Chang and those guys from TBD Angels? Yeah, yeah. No, David's yeah. great. We, yeah. I, I yeah. do a lot with cool. him. Um, nice. Yeah. yeah, no, just it seems like it's it's a good timing for the growth of each year of businesses. And um they, yeah, like I, I agree. I mean that I mean their angel I remember when they started it and it was six, ten, a dozen, and then it's 150 <laughs> uh angels. Yeah, that's well, a lot of that's yeah. a lot of investment power and a and a very different model than VC. A lot of a lot of smaller checks adding up to 10, 12, 13 people involved. So a decent, you know, six figure check going to a company at an early stage, but with not nearly like there's due diligence involved, but not nearly the level of due diligence and likelihood of a no of, of uh, you'd get from VCs. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, there are interesting dynamics at play and the quick rise of a group like TBD is validating the need that angels have to consolidate in some way, right? They are they are looking to be less fragmented. Uh, angel groups have interesting dynamics. Each group is different. Uh, 
they're interesting to see how the groups play out and what is needed to hit a threshold in a group to move forward. Um, TBD is pretty good, but diversity statistics in group decision-making still isn't great. Uh, And so I, I believe there is a better way to consolidate people without needing to formally be in a group. Mm-hmm. Um, but there also are some really interesting uh, innovations in how you allow small check writers to pool their capital. And as you said, get the bigger checks to yeah. the founders, but from individuals where they don't have to fight so hard to convince them they have an investable idea. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Cool. So I think we have to unpack how you made that pivot into being an entrepreneur. And I think I, what I love, it, it seems like you're, your spoiler alert, I think your advice is to pursue different experiences and, and help confirm like your purpose. But talk about what you did, you know, in, you know, initially college, post-college and, you know, what you were doing sort of early in your career kind of drove you to, to you know, eventually getting an MBA. Um, and let's kind of, let's cover that before we talk about you actually being that female founder raising 10 million, eventually sort of that story, because there's a lot to unpack there. Well, let's just talk about at one point in time, entrepreneurship wasn't the path you were on, but then all of a sudden it revealed itself to be the path you were on. Yeah, no, it did. Uh, I've had, I've had a very interesting career. uh, And I I actually, I talk to students a lot. And uh, when you're younger, you don't realize just how much time you have. Like whatever you do out of college does not define the rest of your career. You have so much time to figure out what, what you do want to do in your life. And it can change at any, any time you want it to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I shared in undergrad, I was just all in on clinical psychology, going to, you know, getting into a, a program and a residency and, you know, that whole medical scientific path. Um, but when I was looking at graduation and thinking about where did I want to apply for my next school, uh, I decided I, I really should make sure for sure that this is what I wanted to, because I would have to commit basically the rest of my life to get to a position that I wanted, right? It's similar to becoming a medical doctor. You, you, it's years and years until you're in the position that you want to be in. Uh, so I joined a boutique management consulting firm. Uh, that was building a model to predict when key accounts or B2B customers might leave based on the relationship they had with their key account manager. And so obviously I found this very interesting uh, <laughs> and thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to join. It was a very small group, you know, very familial feeling. I could get into the data. I could work with customers. I could do research, all the stuff I like to do and learn a little bit about what it would be like in business versus science and academia. Uh, and I just loved it. I loved the pace of it. I loved that you could just do things. You could have an idea and you could just do it. And I didn't have to go like write a hundred pages for the IRB to say it was okay to do. You know, I was like, this is amazing. I can just do things and see what happens. Uh, so, so I just loved it. And I stayed there for three years and, you know, helped grow the company, uh, but hit a wall because I didn't have any business education. I was just so focused on science. I, I never studied finance and, you know, never studied marketing, any, any of that stuff. And I couldn't, I, you know, I, I just felt like I needed that. Uh, and so that's why I went to get my MBA. I thought I, I I missed out on business education. 
Cool. And so you went, you went to BU, go Terriers. I went, I went undergrad. Uh, so went to Boston university and two years at BU and talk a bit about, you know, you did a good, you did a good job of this, like really explaining in the pre-podcast Q and a sort of the, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big decision. There's it's, it's an investment. Um, you know, you, you invest a lot of money in MBA, but in the, in your, in your case, you had, no economics background, no sort of finance business sort of background. You learned a bit on the fly, but talk a bit about the decision and decision-making going into to, to BU and sort of what you got out of it. Yeah. So yeah, for, you know, there are any number of reasons someone might want to go to business school. And I usually counsel, this, this could be a contrary view to others, but I don't think you should go just to enter that network of people. I think you should want the education and you should be getting something out of the academic, you know, pursuit of getting a degree in business. Um, So for me, that was very, I I just want to jump in and say, I agree so much because I, I told, I also agree for everyone that goes, I didn't, I haven't gone to business school. Everyone who goes to business school is like the network's amazing. And the network, and I'm like, that's awesome. And that's like, there's other ways you can infiltrate networks. It's not to say like being in that MBA program doesn't have its own unique way of you getting network. But like if I go to business school and I've flirted with it and now that I'm EIR at Endicott, we're talking about like ways I can sort of start to take some classes again. Like I want to learn, like I, like I never like really went down the long tail of economics. Like, so that like, that's where I find myself when I'm like, huh, what would I study? So completely with you or like the network's great, but be passionate and interested in acquiring new skills, new knowledge. Yeah, exactly. And it's both the academic knowledge, but also consider the programming of the school that you're applying to, because every business school is run differently. So for me, I had gotten in and was deciding between Babson and BU, which one did I want to go to? Uh, Babson is very focused on entrepreneurship. And very focused on, well, at least it was, this was a Mm -hmm. long time ago now that I was deciding between these schools, Uh, uh, very focused on your individual pursuits uh, in business uh, and the person as the focal point. BU, again, at least at that time, was very focused on group work and teamwork and and the the curriculums were different. Uh, And for me, uh, I'm very good at working independently. That's my style. I have for, you know, forever. I'm very strong at that. Uh, I wasn't as strong at at working in a group um, and group dynamics and releasing control of things. I knew that was a weaker point for me. Um, And frankly, in my original, you know, pursuit of being a clinical psychologist wasn't as important, right? I I was on my own for most of my work. I did an, you know, honors thesis on my own. I designed my own things. I didn't need that piece. But to go into business, I needed that piece. I needed to force myself to get stronger at it. And that's actually the deciding factor that I used to go to BU rather than Babson. So it's both the academic content, but also what are you learning skills-wise in how you work in a business setting? And is that the right school to push you where you're uncomfortable? Yeah, so it kind of comes in a bit to sort of the academic philosophy. And so I am actually not from like, and at least, you know, not to say it's the case now, like caveat that, but was how overt or how much did you have to sort of like read into how Babson and BU were showcasing their business schools? Was it, was Babson very like, 
we focus on the solopreneur, like individual, making sure they're the best entrepreneur and BU is like, we're focused on team. Like, was it, was it that clear or was that more the Allison Byers sort of takeaway from your analysis? Well, I mean, Babson has always had a focus on entrepreneurship. They've been very yeah. strong there, right? BU was more of a broader business school. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they have different cool. verticals that you could specialize within the business school. So there were yeah. people that were in healthcare specifically, and there was healthcare pro- pro- programming. There was a, you know, computer science slash, and you know, MBA kind of program. So it, it just had a broader uh you know, view that they marketed. Uh, and yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Interesting. Well, one of the things that I will do as I sometimes do is go down the rabbit hole of, um, of, 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 of business, of business school focus, um, because I'm always looking to learn more. So that's, this is a new lens. I'm going to look at things through <laughs> as I am, uh, nerding out on the most latest, greatest programming from some yeah. of these schools in, in Massachusetts. Um, well, and that, that's the yeah. advice I give people considering yeah. business schools or, or any education is you really like, or anything you do, think of your end goal. What is your end goal coming out of whatever it is that you're considering doing? And is the thing you're about to do going to get you there? Yeah. Right. So unless your end goal is, you know, I just want to meet people who specifically would go to this business school and then you think it's worth your money and your time to do that. I mean, okay, but I don't know that anybody would come to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, so what year did you finish the um, business, your MBA at BU? Uh, 2008, I believe. Okay. And how long was it before you were became a founder and that you were sort of experiencing what it was like to be a female raising money? <laughs> it was a while. There was a <laughs> lot that happened. <laughs> so talk a bit about um, what happened and then how did you end up finding yourself in that position? <laughs> yeah. So, so after business school, um, I actually went to work at a web analytics company in Boston. A lot of people worked, worked there. Uh, a lot of uh, people at HubSpot came out of there. It was a company called Compete. Oh, uh, yeah. oh yeah, I don't know if you know. Yeah, I know. Black. I know uh, Scott Ernst. Yeah, yeah, he was running I, it. He's the CEO of a note of now former client of mine. He, but I helped him with his appointment release to come into Tubular Labs. Oh, okay. which is a big social video measurement company out in San Francisco because he lives out in the Bay now. So I got to meet him, and he like schooled me on like the Compete. Story. I was on like, was it Newberry Street or was it HQ? It was like Back Bay, right? It was in Copley. It was like in I was the Copley. It was like in the yeah. Copley Mall in that rotunda in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So your OG measurement, some background there with Compete. All right. I know the yeah, Compete story. I went nice. there, um, and it's it's interesting. This is one. It was one of those. You know, every job I've had has been in an entirely different industry from the one before it. But with that theme of like, you know, with Compete, we were using clickstream data. So what people were doing on the internet to pull out their behavior and their motivation and then counsel our customers on what they could do to change or modify said behavior just by looking at this clickstream data. Um, so for me, you know, I, I didn't, I had to learn that whole language. I didn't know anything about clickstream or, you know, I kind of made my way in there. But what I did know through their interview process was they give you a sample set of data. I know how to manipulate data and I know how to tell a story with it and I know how to present. And so it was actually my presentation 
in that interview that got me the job of, of their own data. Um, but I was the account manager for Google while I was there, which was their largest customer. So Compete was organized in verticals. We had like travel and finance and, you know, different verticals and Google spanned all of them. So I worked with like everyone in the company on their, on their verticals to Google and went So to- immediately the BU training was helpful because you were working across teams, across the company, all over, all sorts of directions. Yep. Absolutely. Super helpful. I was, I was so glad I made the decision to force myself to get better at working in groups and understand group dynamics. It, it was absolutely helpful. Cool. Um, so yeah, I did that for um, a little over two years. Uh, and this is the part of the story. I've, I've started talking much more openly about this. I didn't used to. Uh, for a long time, I didn't. And, and now I have been. Uh, but I, uh, you know, got pregnant with my son while I was working there. Uh, one of very few women who had, you know, been pregnant or had children at that company um, uh, and took my maternity leave. And when I came back, worked for a little while longer, but I was essentially forced out of my job. Uh, it, it was really difficult. Yeah, that's awful. Um, and yeah, it, it, you know, I wasn't fired. Um, but what I've learned since talking about this more is a lot of women have experienced what I did, which is you're given responsibilities that are incompatible with nursing a newborn. Uh, hmm. and so I, I had to leave. I so you're put in a position to basically choose nursing your newborn or working. Yes. A, a lot of the time travel is used for that. And it's travel. Okay. I was going to ask what are the factors? So making you have to mobile, like leave your leave travel away from the home. Yes. Um, and that was pretty deliberate right away. I mean, I don't want to speak for what was deliberate or not deliberate. I, I don't want to speak for somebody else. And this was a long time ago now, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was back when you don't find this as much anymore, but like there was nowhere for someone to uh, pump at that office. I had to mm-hmm. take over the one conference room that had no windows and a lock on the door. And I yeah. wasn't looked at very kindly for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like there weren't, there weren't accommodations yeah. for new mothers and, and it wasn't made, uh, you know, feasible to stay. Was it a bit job. of a boys? Sorry to talk over you. Like, like I, I just remembering, I don't know if it was a bit of a boys club there or something. Cause I was at Schwartz communications in like 2007, eight, nine. And I remember there was a room for moms to breastfeed at that time, which maybe was that like an exception at that point in time? Would you say? Yeah, I think that was probably, probably. Uh, yeah. not the norm. I think that, okay. that was a good sign for that company that you had one. Mm. I, I had to make the argument that I would not do it in the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, now you go to the um, airport, right? And you're in the airport terminal, and there's like the best pumping stations. Yeah, it's much better. It's, it's much better yeah. now. But also, you know, as I said before, lack of empathy. Since 2020, one third of working mothers have had to reduce or leave their jobs. Yeah. Even without, you know, the concept of even if you're not a new mom and your kids are a little older, it's still incredibly difficult for mothers to remain in the workforce. So at that time, I had to leave um, mm-hmm. and I ended up staying home for four years as a stay at home mom. I had a major identity crisis. You know, I'm very type A, very aggressive in my pursuit of my career. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're just not you're just not doing yeah. it. <laughs> and there weren't a lot of fractional, like the, the fractional kind of hybrid work economy we live in now had didn't exist yet. Didn't exist. Really, my only option for my skill set was to go into, you know, start my own consultancy practice. And yeah. I, I just didn't want to do that at that time. Um, yeah. 
yeah, the, the concept of a fractional role wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so yeah, so I stayed home. We had our second um, child and my daughter. Um, and once she was old enough to, you know, we, we found some childcare and I, I said, I, I'm ready. I want to go back. I can't do this anymore. You know, for some state being a stay at home mom is fulfilling and that's amazing for me. It's, it's not, you know, I needed, I wanted more and I wanted to contribute to society. Uh, so I went through a couple evaluations of what did I want to do when you're, you know, evaluating how to get back into the workforce. Um, and now there's also some great companies and programs addressing this that did not oh, exist cool. before. Right. So like the mom, almost like re-entry great. after yeah. Would that be yeah. a right, like, like re-entry into your career yeah. after a, a hiatus, just helping yeah. raise your kids for a bit, right? Exactly. What's, exactly. A, what's an example of that type of a company? Uh, so the Mom Project is a really cool. big good example. There's also some recruiting firms that specifically focus on uh, mothers re-entering the workforce or mothers who need part-time work. You know, for like for me, if I could have found part-time work back then, oh, perfect. You know, I, I'm... There are millions of mothers like me who are highly skilled and educated and accomplished who just need something that enables them to be able to contribute to society as well as raise their families. Uh, so it is getting better. You know, we're not yeah. there, but it's, there are companies that are getting funded. The Mom Project is funded to help uh, do that. Um, so a lot of women do what I did and turn to entrepreneurship because, you know, we came out of a situation at a, at a corporate job that was not sustainable. And so we think, well, what would allow me more flexibility? What, you know, what would be okay and sustainable for me mm -hmm. to have my career and entrepreneurship is a very good option there. Yeah. Um, you know, then we run into the problems of capitalizing, which we've, we've talked about, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but for me, uh, I happened into um, this opportunity to join a scientific founding team that was, again, translating uh, IP out of MIT and Leahy, where it already had this amazing clinical validation. Um, but they didn't want to leave their positions, didn't want to learn how you do the messy business things, right? So I got to start part time. I incorporated the company, found both legal counsel, you know, negotiated the IP arrangements, all those things, those businessy things. Uh, that I knew how to do uh, and, um, you know, could do that. Uh, and of course, fell in love with it, you know, absolutely loved the product we were building, who it could help the mission of it, because I had decided, you know what, like, if I'm doing it, if I'm going back into the workforce, I'm not just helping Google sell more ads, I'm doing something that's meaningful. Uh, and um, ended up uh, co-running the company, being on the board, doing all the fundraising, right, ended up being the, the kind of head of company. Uh, so wow. that, that was my transition into entrepreneurship. And then it was that experience, like we started with, of the firsthand, you know, being the woman fundraiser, being just completely, I mean, overt bias. And it hmm. is representative. Now, you know, I've heard over 200 stories from founders. Everyone has just an unbelievable story of bias against them. And, and I had it too. Uh, and that's where that, you know, the passion for my current idea came from. Uh, mm. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of the bias that the 200 and counting have sort of shared with you and then your own experience, I, I imagine there's quite a range and some of it's much more subtle, but any examples like, you know, any, you know, anecdotal examples, you know, we obviously don't have to get into specifics and throw anyone under the bus of like some of the more egregious behavior that people have faced. 
Yeah, I mean, so there there are subtle ones and there are egregious ones, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can tell you for for me, some mid-range ones were I'd be called young lady a lot. Or, you know, you're if you're a woman, you're either looked at as young and naive or too old to be doing this. And there's like no good age, right? So if I was called young lady, I would have to say, okay, in my head, talk about your kids so they realize you're old enough to have had kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I look younger than I am. Right. And They're triggering you into an odd defense posture. Well, it's really belittling. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's belittling. belittling yeah. 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 You know, I'm not going to look at you, VC, and say, oh, thank you, young man. You know, how would that come off? Why can you yeah. say it to me? Um, yeah. So there's that kind of stuff where you're just automatically put in this lower position of power. Made to be feel people. lesser than. Yeah. Exactly. I talk to our founders about this all the time. Women and people of color in particular automatically feel less than when they go mm-hmm. into a room with an investor. Mm-hmm. And what what founders, if any founders listening to this need to keep in their minds is the only way investors make money is off of you and what you're doing. You are the profitable enterprise. You're the you asset. Them. You are yeah. the asset. That's what I always you're tell saying, young people. I'm yeah. building wealth here. Yeah. If you want to join me, great. I'm offering and, you the opportunity. And you'd be you lucky to. I'm going to go yeah. talk to someone else, but don't make yeah. yourself less than. Mm-hmm. Right on. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there's other stories that founders have shared, particularly Black founders have shared with me that, you know, they'll get a meeting and then they'll walk in the room and they can feel people deflate and they can just feel that they're not going to be taken seriously. Kind of like the story you shared of the coach where, you know, they're just there to be there and they're not there for meaningful consideration. Right. Yeah. Like the, yeah, like Brian Flores, like I'm, I'm here for the object, uh, optics of it. Um, but you're not even giving me a, a, a fair shot. Uh, right. You've already you've already made your decision not to invest. Right. Um, yeah, that's 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 wild. What what um what was some of the like what were you doing right before Scrubius? And sort of, I'm curious. Sort of another thing you mentioned, and I actually completely related to this in the pre podcast Q and A. You 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 reference sort of at different um, stages of your career, you've had sort of like a partner. Um, sort of like, a, you know, whether it's been a partner or a mentor for me, it's been like a partner or a mentor. There's been one constant mentor through like developing my business plan to move to Los Angeles, like developing the business plan and, and launching value creation labs. But then there's also been like very distinct humans that have played a hypercritical role on the different stops in different things that I've worked on in the last almost 15 years. Um, so I'm curious, like, can you speak a little bit to sort of like your brain trust? I talk a lot to my my students about like, and they're like, what's a brain trust? I'm like, let me tell you, you have a brain trust. Let me explain it to you. Like, it could be your, your parents could be in your brain trust. Maybe it's an uncle you always confide in. Who'd you talk to when you chose to go to Endicott College? Um, what, you know, had, had there been any um, uh, folks that, you know, when you go home, you grab coffee with and you talk to about what you want to do in life, like those sort of people. So I'm curious, like, who's in your brain trust? Um, and just speak a bit to the folks that have helped you along the way. And in particular, I'm curious, like the folks that are sort of involved with helping, helping, helping you and helping uh, Scroobius be uh, successful. Yeah, you know, for sure. I think, you know, mentorship, uh, the appropriate mentorship for what's relevant to what you have going on is so important. So through everything, even my undergraduate, you know, I worked directly under professors who were my mentor. I, I you know, needed them to teach me and to be there. I, you know, they are still, I think of them a lot. Um, 
then when I went into the business world, uh, my first boss has been a constant. He was amazing. He's a Wharton guy, taught me a lot of stuff uh, and, you know, just a good, good human. And he, um, you know, I still, I don't talk to him as much anymore, but we still do connect and we'll meet up for coffee. And, um, you know, I've, I've sought his counsel. Uh, in my last company, I sought his counsel for something and it's, you know, decade later. Um, another constant in my life who's now, an, she's an official advisor at Scrubius, uh, but I first met her because I won a scholarship from her when I went to Questrom, when I went to BU, she gives one scholarship to a female uh, MBA um, new student. Uh, I think it's every year. Uh, her name's Cynthia Cohen and she is just fantastic. Uh, and she's come in and out of my life, right? When I was home for four years, wasn't really in my life, but she has been absolutely critical in my different efforts. And in particular with Scrubius, because she is such a champion and so passionate about female entrepreneurship and women in business. Uh, and she really pushed me to do what I'm doing when I came to her with the idea very first. And she she was like, you, you go incorporate, do this, right? And, and you need, sometimes you need people to sit to validate it enough for you to say, I should do this for real. Um, and then of course, family. I mean, I'm very lucky to have, you know, just an incredibly supportive husband. We have a very healthy relationship. He's, you know, in business too, understand, seen everything I've gone through and, you know, it's, it's really allows for me to do a, a lot of what I'm doing. Um, by working together, you know, as a unit. Uh, and then my dad, is, you know, has been in business and he's been uh, my longest standing counsel, uh, you know, for every step of my career. Um, so, and, and then the, the last person I'll mention, the woman I ended up co-running that medical device company with, uh, you know, is, is my best friend, you know, was the one I was talking everything through, you know, should I do this? She helped me out in the beginning. Um, She's, she is a scientist uh, more so, so I, I wish she could be doing this with me, but she, you know, <laughs> wanted to keep pursuing scientific uh, efforts versus just pure business. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's, it's actually something that I took, just moving it back for a second. I, I talk about this thing called the mom tax a lot and I'm just bringing it back up because we yeah. talk about it, you know, for, for her, for, you know, Tony and I, we, we went through the trenches of that business together. And we have a very strong bond because of that experience. We wouldn't have met each other otherwise, right? When you're forced to stay home during a critical portion of the of your career, right? Your 30s, that's the age where a lot happens. Yeah. I've missed that. There are, you know, a lot of men I worked with at Compete have grown and exited companies and are now, you know, in this position of having amazing networks and wealth because they had those years in the trenches with people that moms who are forced out don't get to have. Yeah, that's, that's wild. The mom, the mom, the mom taxes. That's how, um, I'm not super familiar with like that verbiage of it. It, it sounds like it could be a podcast and a book and a series. Like, it seems like they're, is there, are there, um, where, where, where do you, where do you, um, where, where does one go to kind of as a, as a, as a mom, um, that is looking to sort of, you know, you know, relate to like minds and, and, you know, you know, read stories of inspiration and support each other. Um, you know, obviously if you're a founder, um, or aspiring founder, you can go to Scrubius. Um, but do you like, do you find there's like, 
places or is there is that another area where there's like some need which is just sort of like and i'm thinking more like in a with my media publisher hat on like where does one go and consume information to like realize like oh yeah like you're you're dealing with this sort of this this issue but but you're not alone and like here's tactics and ways that other moms are navigating and sort of like uh, you know working to like eliminate this this mom tax and and sort of like not not delay their careers when they make the the you know the obvious choice to spend some time more time at home with their kids but want to sort of continue their pursuit of whatever is you know their their career passion it's hard because I haven't made a concerted effort myself to find those communities. Um, you know, because for me, I, I did get to re-enter the workforce in a, a part-time capacity and then, you know, obviously got sucked right back in, but I, I didn't, yeah. didn't seek that out. You know, I, again, I, I'm not involved in the mom project, but I do know of it and they are likely doing a lot of that, but yeah. I, I think it is a need. Um, and particularly because, you know, I can tell you, I wrote a long LinkedIn post about this, uh, and I've since had a lot of women in my network reach out to me to share their stories of what happened to them. Uh, mm -hmm. It's how I know travel was used not not just on me, and, and it's isolating, right? I didn't talk about this for many years, um, and, it, and it's and you're afraid. Like, I, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't want people to tell me I'm accusing them of things, you know, and, and memory shifts over time and, and all that stuff. But um mm is really important for mothers yeah. to share their stories of what happened, the tax that was placed on them by their employer when they were forced to leave, whether it was overt or not, uh, and then how they handled that identity shift you have when you're no longer working, uh, and how they decided and and how they were able to re-enter in what capacity. I think there probably is a really big need for that. Yeah. Well, if you ever looking to activate on a platform, keep it lean and mean. Boston Speaks Up is think of it like a network. I tell I tell this to folks certain times when it seems to make sense. But like the Mom Tax podcast or series, if you got four, five, six, seven, eight moms that you want to have individual conversations with and and have a limited series run out, and I can give you the playbook to you can be the host and host that podcast and I can help produce it and I'll put it out on, out on my platform so that, or, our, or I should say VCL's platform. So it gets out to the world. Like, maybe. Um, yeah, like that's an yeah. interesting area. You know, maybe talk to the mom project. Um, yeah. You know, maybe well, it's you know brought to you by is, them. <laughs> uh, someone who's really passionate about this area too is Andy Lyons, who yep. I, I'm sure you, you know. Oh know yeah. I haven't. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So there's, there we go. There's a little, thread we can potentially weave together something interesting later yeah um, I, I would love to do yeah. something about that it, it really is and and there's a lot of education needed too when you re-enter you know we, we were talking about that before is you almost have to be re-coached into those signals of confidence yeah. because you doubt yourself after being away <clears throat> from executing on your skills for a while you know yeah. well am I up to you know am I up to snuff with everybody else you didn't have to take that break and you yeah. start to know when you shouldn't, um, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I do know as someone who is a, you know, a, a proud and loving husband to an amazing woman who left her job at a startup in LA when we were in LA to spend time with our daughter the first couple of years of her life. Like my wife is, Elizabeth is amazing. And when we, when you know, she was, 
she was so antsy to do things like she was making dog treats um, with like bananas and sweet potatoes, like really healthy dog treats. And she started like a homeless dogs LA Twitter account and an Instagram account. And she would literally just drive around like Venice beach, like with our daughter Mila in the backseat and give, uh, see homeless people with their dogs and just pull over and like give them healthy dog treats. Um, and when we were moving back to Boston and we were sitting down and talking, it's like, she was trying, like, she was trying to figure out how to reenter the workforce. It's not easy. Um, but we kind of went into that. Well, homeless dogs, LA and you love animals and the Northeast animal shelter over here. So the, the, the short of the story is like it, but it took time to like build up the confidence, but like, yeah, like go, go look for, go get a job at Northeast animal shelter, like help, you know, help, pets, you know, it, it find the right homes. And, and now she's doing like community outreach programs. And it's just, it's really um, amazing to see. Um, but there was a real challenge in there too um, that came with sort of like identity and sort of, you know, purpose and, and sort of and re-entry. Uh, so just having experienced that as a husband um, with, with his wife, like I, there weren't like, I didn't know what, there weren't a lot of places to turn other than like to each other and like our peer group and just building, you know, building up, you know, helping build up, um, you know, someone we love to just get back out there. Um, but it just seems to me like it would, it would really, you know, there's just an incredible, it'd be incredibly valuable. It will continue to be incredibly valuable to have things like the moms, uh, the mother, uh, the mom project, um, sort of hopefully taking a very like publisher focused, you know, communicative approach to, um, to their work and, and hopefully that helps, you know, this whole sea of, you know, um, boats rise. So, so yeah, yeah that's, no, that's I kind of my relatable note. Look, <laughs> like, you should have your wife talk about it. I also, I, yeah. I, I talked to your wife. Uh, we'll have her on your podcast on Vasa Speaks <laughs> Up. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so yeah. many, I mean, I can tell you one of my big goals as well with Scroobius, uh, is meeting a couple ESG goals. And one of them is uh, gender equality, you know, and in the workforce and, uh, one of our key differentiators of our program with founders is that we provide not only asynchronous online education, but human review of their things mm. in a structured mm-hmm. way so that we can keep it affordable and scalable. And the scalable piece of that is I plan to build up a contractor base of women, of moms who have had awesome. to leave their jobs, who could, who, yeah. I would have loved having a contract job to be yep. trained in a way to review pitches that is useful to the founder yeah. and delivering those pitches. Very when you have time. two hours, when you can fit it into your day, like exactly. boom, you dial it in, kids, you know, child's taking a nap, they're doing an activity, boom, like at exactly. your discretion. Yeah. Yep. So that, that's awesome. that is my plan on how to scale that part of our business while providing some, you know, income and mental workout for the moms who want it. Yeah. That's that's great. That's uh, that's incredible. I'm excited to see that that unfold. It, one of the things that we talked about pre-pod. So there's like a couple kind of dish, like final questions I want to make sure we cover. And and one is like I'd love for you just to share a bit about sort of your leadership style and and also like what's your leadership style now and how how's that changed over the years. Um, but but sort of and, and what, how do you you know what do you what do you what type of leader are you or do you do you aspire to be? Yeah. So, um, it's funny when I, when you asked that question, <laughs> part of my, uh, 
my honors thesis in undergrad was uh, when you're in psychology and you design your own study and you write a paper. And I did a study on uh, the parenting style of workaholic parents and the impact it had on their young adult children, uh, which Interesting. I guess telling about myself to begin with. But um, can you can you I, tell me? Can you spoiler alert? Tell me what the conclusion was because it's sometimes I wonder what the, what the no, daughter seems to be working at night. What is that? What's happening? Well, there are some key parenting styles which are also the same as leadership styles. By the way, there's authoritarian authoritative and there's passive so mm-hmm. authoritarian is where you think of like a dictator that type mm-hmm. of leadership like i i run this ship you do what i say kind of thing yeah. right which is a management yeah. style um yeah. and there's passive where you kind of let people do whatever and you're not really that involved uh and then authoritative in the middle mm-hmm. is uh really leading by commanding respect and you know it, it's a healthy kind of leadership style and parenting style as well. And so, you know, what I found is those who identified their parents as having an authoritative leadership style through, you know, all the questionnaires and studies that we used, because uh, I did this on college students, it's what, what you do when you're in college, uh, resulted in, you know, had the best results that mm. children of that parenting style tended to have, um, what's called a locus of control, an internal locus of control, which means I feel that I can control what happens around me versus an external locus of control, which is things just happen to me and I can't control them. Uh, That's very important for your self-confidence and how you move in the world if you believe you're internally have your locus of control. Uh, So, you know, in my own leadership style, when I shifted from science to business, I've actually always kept that in mind that you know, I want to be an authoritative leader. I want to lead by example. I want to have high standards for myself morally and quality of work and therefore expected of others because I show it myself. That's how you command respect and why, you know, people want to live up to expectations is because you perform your own expectations. You're, you're you know, walking the talk that you're putting out there. Uh, and I think that's really that's really important, and it's something I always strive for. Is I give everyone the respect I would want them to give me, and I perform in the same way I want everyone else to perform. Nice. I love the, this format, and I love how much you you're bringing into this conversation. I tend to like I love having dinner with with my family. I love sitting down at the table. I love, I love talking to my wife. With, I love my our daughter participating, but also seeing us at the dinner table and talking about our days. And I look forward to talking about sort of the authoritative style that it seems that we practice well together, Elizabeth and I, but just kind of like, it's, 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 it's cool to have sort of um, that, that range of three and sort of like, and, and just, and just, and just think about it that way. It's a nice, it's nice from a sort of like reaffirmation standpoint. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think personally um, that'll probably, it'll probably come up at the dinner table tonight. Um, <laughs> I, I love ending with this question. Our, our, our um, production coordinator added it some, some time ago and, it, and it's a lot of fun. I lo- and I love, I love your, your sort of answer and challenge. Can you, can you share your challenge to listeners? Yeah. So my <laughs> challenge to everyone is to try and make somebody laugh. Start. Maybe you're laughing because you hear my dog right now. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, laughter is so beneficial for a number of reasons Uh, You know, right off the bat, if you can start a meeting by making somebody smile or chuckle, it it just makes it comfortable. You get people in a place where they want to work with you and and it's nice and and it's unexpected because not enough people do look at things in a lighthearted way or humor. You know, 
I start every meeting with something that's not formal. And I love making, cracking jokes, making people laugh. It just, it, it relieves stress for you and the other person. It instantly creates a more relatable situation to each other. So, you know, any meeting you're in, whatever you feel the power dynamics are, try, try and make somebody smile and laugh. And, yeah. it, and it, it's just, you'll have a better time doing what you're doing too. Yeah. You heard that everyone lighthearted jokes to start your zoom calls from here on out. I, I love it. <laughs> not I, like I, as someone who tends, not like uh, a dad joke. Don't do a dad joke. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, try to come up with something clever, but you know, the, it's, it's, you know, it's the thought that counts. And if you can get, you know, usually it, it, I'm usually that guy at the top of the call going with jokes. I had a call with a guy on Tuesday and I, I joked with him. He was laughing so much at what I was saying. I said, I'm going to have you in the front row for a stand up night. Like I, I feel like I'm, you know, may rest in peace. I feel like I'm Norm McDonald right now. Like I, I feel like I'm on like another level. Like I didn't even know I was being funny, but you're cracking up. And it made um, you feel good, right? It made me feel amazing. You get, I was you like, get some oh, dopamine let's... shots in your brain and you're like, well, oh, this is good interaction. Yeah. Right. All right. Now, like what, yeah, yeah, now the creative marketing ideas you need, they're going to start flowing. So great. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you feed my ego with laughter. Great. I uh, appreciate that. Yeah. Um, how do people get in touch with you and, and sort of what, what type of folks would you encourage in particular like to, to reach out? But what, what's, what is a good way to get, get in touch? Yeah, I mean, I make myself really available. Um, so, you know, you can always go to the website. I picked a funny name for the company, but it has meaning behind it. So Scroobius, S-C-R-O-O-B-I-O-U-S. Uh, people drop the O. Um, and it's funny. That, <laughs> here's a funny story. Uh, when I was naming the company, you know, it's all kinds of things. But um, uh, there's a rapper who has gained some notoriety who's named the Scroobius Pip. It's after a poem. That's what the company's named after. Okay. And, it without the O. And I kept, I was like, oh, why did he spell it wrong? Like scroobius.com spelled right is available. I'm taking that. Why didn't he do that? Yeah. It's because everyone spells it without the O. Now, now mm. I know. Now I'm like, oh, this is why he did it. <laughs> so everyone spells it. Wrong. So people spell it B-I-U-S instead of B-I-O-U-S. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's, <laughs> nice. if you Google Scroobies or Google my name, we're pretty yeah. high up there. Um, cool. I'm really active on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I, you know, my DMs are open. Uh, people, you know, it's not hard to figure out how to reach me. Um, but, cool. you know, if you're like, if you're a startup founder who's listening to this, who feels like your your story isn't resonating or, you, need, you know, you need a little help there or you want to join a community where there's other founders like you who have that firsthand experience, you know, please reach out by, by all means. Um, what we're building is meant to be approachable for anyone. Uh, and we charge a super low fee for founders. Even if you can't afford it, we also have sponsors so that we can give out scholarships. Uh, I don't want awesome. to charge people money they don't have. Um, you know, I want to make this help available. Cool. This has been amazing. I'm actually going to share it when this is done and live and out with the community, which I'm look, really looking forward to. I'm, I'm going to share it with uh, Gina Deschamps, who I work with at Endicott. She runs a, she's in charge of the Angle Center for Entrepreneurship. And next fall, we're doing a women in leadership conference. And uh, I mentioned, I, I've already mentioned it to her in one of our meetings, actually, a couple weeks back that we'd be chatting and you'd be a great person to, to, to add to the mix there. But it, Hopefully, um, hopefully this is this is just the beginning of some cool collaborations between us. We'll have to talk, um, mo- you know, sort of podcast ideas, and and yeah. you know, happy happy to have have that conversation too. Um, maybe you know, maybe we get the mom project involved as well. 
Uh, but Allison, this has been an ab- absolute pleasure. I really, really appreciate the time and just thank you for sharing so, so openly with us. Yeah. Thanks for having this format and having me on. I, I love conversations like this and it's so important for other people to hear real stories that they, they can connect with. So, um, so thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. You too. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, Boston. <laughs>